This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Hello and welcome to the third edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. My name is Edward Jones and I'm your host and joining me as always is my co-host uh, from Guido Ramblings and Eastern Kicks is Mr. Stephen Palmer. Thank you very much for having me yet again. Um, obviously tonight we're on our third edition and tonight's selection is chosen by Stephen who has gone for the Thai movie or the Thai Western should we say, uh, Tears of the Black Tiger. Um and the first of tonight's butchering of foreign names. Uh, this one's directed by Wissit Sasan Nanting. <laughs> I think it's Sanathat. Oh, I can't do it either. Sanathiang. Yeah. Um, who also um, can be known as Sid. <laughs> so, whichever one you want to uh, go with there. But uh, before we obviously get into uh, our selection for for the week i mean it's obviously keenly we address the current situation happening in the world i mean there's a lot of political discussion there's a lot of heated debate about uh, events happening in the world and of course like the key topic that's been obviously the most discussion uh really since last episode and that's the fact that uh steven you've never heard of kaiju big bad l i hadn't until <laughs> we finished recording last time <laughs> no um I mean, obviously, if you're like soon and have no idea what I'm talking about, Kaiju Big Battle um, is basically you get to go and watch wrestling, but instead of people in spandex, you get to see people dressed as Kaiju monsters fighting in a ring with cardboard <laughs> buildings uh, in the ring, and they basically battle it out. And you've got colorful characters such as uh, Chicken Noodle Soup and the Plantain Twins and uh, the Evil Doctor Cube. So, I mean, since we discussed it at the end of uh of the last episode of uh, i mean did you uh have a chance to watch any more kaiju big battle you 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 kindly linked me to some youtube videos yeah. and i did watch them okay <laughs> with a with a kind of mix of dumbfounded amusement <laughs> and you know what that's kind of cool <laughs> with full geek cred on you know what i mean it's um if you're gonna if you're gonna mash up two nerd cultures, yeah. wrestling and kaiju movies, you might as well do it full on, right? Of course. Um, I mean, obviously, at the moment, the company is going to begin its first ever video game released uh, through Super Warus Games. The game that uh, is called uh, Kaiju Big Battle Fighter Fantasy, and it's kind of like a Final Fantasy style game. Uh, we did an interview with the designer of uh, from Super Warriors Games over on my other podcast, uh, Game Warp, and I will include a link at the bottom of the description there. And basically, from what they're saying, it's going to really tie in to what everyone loves about Kaiju Big Bad L, but uh, put it on this world trekking mission and uh, incorporate elements of Final Fantasy into it. So that is certainly something I'm still very excited to see. And uh, since we obviously saw the trailer first appear on the Steam early, early release, and... Uh, it's really exciting all the screenshots that uh, we keep seeing from it because basically you get to see these like sixteen-bit uh, versions of all your favorite casual big battle wrestlers. So, uh, so that's certainly what's been uh, holding my interest. But I mean, other than obviously that, I mean, if you had anything holding your interest in the world of sort of Asian cinema, Asian TV at all? Do you know what? It's actually been a bit of a fallow. It's been a, like a month, hasn't it, since we last yeah. recorded about that and. In terms of Asian films, I think I've hit a bit of a a bit of a dry patch. Really, okay. um, I have that towering pile of DVDs and things saved, um, but real life has kind of got in the way, and I haven't been feeling entirely inspired. However, I have just got hold of a whole bunch of um, female prisoner scorpion movies featuring um one of my favorite japanese actresses so i suspect i will be diving into there and no doubt bringing it here <laughs> at some okay. point i mean have you ever seen any of the female prisoner scorpion movies i saw the first one a very long time 
time ago. Okay. Um, but um, I, I can't pretend I'm totally blown away with it, but it was a long time ago. Um, and I think I'm a more, more interest uh, more more interested in it now yeah and 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 of course it's got they've got they've got Mike Okaji in it who's um you know a, a, an idol for me so I'll go back and I'll enjoy greatly I hope yeah um I mean Mike Okaji I mean you nailed it on the head right there when as what why would you want to watch female prison score mainly because Mike Okaji's in it I mean let's not forget I mean she's not only did this series she did the Stray Cat Rock series uh she was in Lady Snowblood and she's, I mean, she's ranked up over about 100 film credits over the years. I mean, when you go through it, and it's basically any sort of key cult sort of Japanese uh, film that's come out, you can pretty much guarantee she's in there somewhere. I mean, just looking at the list here, we've obviously, I mean, she was in Blind Woman's Curse. We mentioned already Shay Cat Rock. She did, uh, f- well, it was four films for that. So it was like Delinquent Girl, Boss, Wild Jumbo, Sex Hunter, and Machine Animal. Uh, she was in Yakuza Graveyard, and she was in both Lady Snowblood movies. Um, and she, I mean, she even turns up in Battles Without Honor and Humanity, Hiroshima Deathmatch as well. So she's a lady of whose career is definitely worth looking into, certainly. Uh, so if you've yet to obviously discover her work, then I would highly recommend that you, you go check it out. Um, I mean, do you, have you seen much of her work or is it sort of well uh, yeah i'm a, I, I love both lady snowblood movies yeah um i reviewed blind blind woman's curse not that long ago on guaylo ramblings and you know that, that's that's a very interesting film sort of a mix of b movie and art movie really in some in some ways but of course she stands out of course i know the stray cat rock movies yeah i i i've, I've seen a lot of a lot of her stuff but this is just um so, so, sometimes I avoid the um, the ones where there's there's like four, five, six, seven films. It's like I'm. Um, I think when we spoke on the first episode, I just sort of started getting into the uh, Lone Wolf and Cub films because there's this sort of this this, this challenging oeuvre of movies that I don't. It's quite hard just to pick one or two. You you feel obliged to watch the lot. And I, I, I find that somewhat intimidating at times. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I mean, when we look at her career, though, I mean, it's easy to compare her career and the career of, like, Pam Greer. What well, Pam Greer's exploitation, I think that she really is to, like, uh, to sort of, like, the girl gang movies. And certainly tough tough women in Japanese cinema, I think she's really sort of the embodiment of, of that. And it's a shame she never had that crossover appeal. And, I mean, she was obviously given offers to do films in Hollywood, but... It was her confidence to perform in English, which she led to a sort of refusing them. And I mean, she started off at Nakatsu and she did like the Stray Cat Rock series. And then when Nakatsu started going into like the pink film and the Roman porno sort of business, she moved over Tori. And then we obviously saw like her doing like the female prisoner movies. Um, and I go back and forth over which I prefer, whether I prefer like the female prisoner movies or the Stray Cat Rock series. But um, I know both have received really nice box set releases from Arrow um frustratingly both in like limited numbers which means that if you don't order it when it comes out you can expect to pay like double maybe triple the price when you go to pick it up later yeah it's it's what it, it's all ones where they look on ebay and you think oh my god <laughs> yeah <laughs> do i like it that much uh, and the answer is no yeah damn traders <laughs> indeed um, <laughs> Obviously, on to our selection for this evening, we've you've chose uh, Tears of the Black Tiger. This is unique in obviously being an Asian Western, or an Eastern Western, should we say? I mean, this was released in 2000, but I mean, what is it that appealed to you about Tears of the Black Tiger that made you want to obviously cover it on the show? Well, I guess, again, I think I've spoken about this before, but one of my... One of my driving influences about writing on um, Guelo Ramblings in particular is to show people, yes, there are these genre films. Yeah, there are samurai movies. There are Kurosawa movies. There are kung fu movies. You know, there, there, there are there are in Asian cinema, there are standard genres that are played upon. But occasionally you find something that's out there and different um so i i, I actually write quite a lot at eastern kicks about um thai more indie art house cinema so sort of slow cinema and things like that but this 
this has uh, it just blew me away because it had a certain imagination and visual style it's not saying that there aren't people like um in south korea like um, park chan work who, who has a visual style or um the craziness of someone like takashi mikey who we again we've spoken about before but in thai cinema this is very unusual um thai cinema is although quite strong is mostly known for pretty classy horror movies um impenetrable comedies and a decent amount of action but to find something that's well i'll we'll probably talk about this a bit more later but it, it, it's it's steeped in history and it's got a unique visual style that even if you don't like the film i think you can't help but be impressed by um it's certainly an original film i'll give it that much um i mean i have to admit obviously i'm not a huge amount of experience with uh thai cinema most of my sort of experience with asian cinema has obviously been with like hong kong Jap- japanese and korean cinema so it's obviously interesting the fact that you speak so highly of thai cinema i mean for myself the majority of thai cinema i've seen has been things like the tony jar movies so things like Ombak and chocolate yep um so this is kind of interesting i mean this is obviously a well i mean what do you class this as i mean this is a action film it's a romantic melodrama it's probably the most fabulous western ever made um it's 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 <laughs> it's somewhere between affectionate pastiche homage and an art house film i think <laughs> it's, it's yeah it, it kind of sits it sits in both camps it, it's it's incredibly camp and at the same time it's a love letter to a cinema that thai people no longer know about or appreciate not wanting to give the history lesson because i'm not necessarily the most qualified person but but thai cinema has quite a strong history um as as do as does the cinema of of all of sort of the the can we call it indochina sort of thailand vietnam um and uh cambodia but thailand's had a, a bit more of a stable political world, whereas the other two countries have, have lost a lot of their older films the older films from the sort of the, the 50s 60s 70s still exist but younger people today aren't interested in them um they're interested in the latest tony jar film they're late they're interested in 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 tv dramas they're interested in in the horror films so what our friend um Wissett has has put together here he comes from a Appetite, well, screenwriting and advertising background. And so I think this is his first film, isn't it? Yeah, or this is his first, first film. Feature. Um, and he's gone back and he's, he's tried to recreate the, a style of film that was very much prevalent in the, in the 60s and 70s. And that was basically aping Western cinema and in particular Westerns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, like I say, it's viewed kind of. It's not. It's not viewed critically internally, but it's viewed as, "Oh, they're old. They're rubbish. We don't like that. We like new stuff." So it was yeah. just nice to see a new director totally touch base with the past and try and get his local audience aware of of what's going on. The sad thing is, it got picked up as a, as a as an international movie. As a, it went to Cannes, so I think it was the first Thai film to be up in competition in Cannes and guess who got hold of it yes (laughs) harvey weinstein and the miramax corporation and again it's something we'll probably talk about other times for other asian films he got hold of it because it it critically reviewed quite well at cam got hold of it but thought oh it's a little bit long because it's you know like 97 minutes and and the ending's a bit sad um (laughs) So we'll recut it and we'll shorten it a little bit and we'll save it for the American audience. Well, what happened was test screenings, it went miserably. It, 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 so then it went into the Miramax vaults for about five years, at which point this kind of story comes up around it. You know, it's one of those, one of those cult films that no one can get hold of anymore. So amongst sort of Asian film buffs, it becomes one of those sort of holy grails. And 
there were versions you could get versions you could import but actually some of them were cut even worse i've heard um i've heard of a one with 30 minutes cut out of it which god (laughs) i can only imagine cuts out all the melodrama bits and just sort of sells it as some kind of wacky western so i think it took another five or six years before somebody else got it out it's got released on dvd so it's available here in the uk you you, you got hold of a copy fairly easily i imagine um it's not a fantastic dvd release it's a bit bare bones but at least it's out there at least it got rescued from the um the same place that snowpiercer is currently still languishing in well yeah i mean this is the problem i mean max obviously their basis one of their business models has always been like independent and foreign cinema that's where they always based it off so it didn't surprise me the fact that they the Weinsteins bought it. Uh, much like the fact that it didn't uh, surprise me, the fact that uh, old Harvey Scissorhands decided to start cutting bits out of it. And they cut out some really random scenes. I mean, they cut out whole characters, such as uh, the character Sergeant Yam, who's like this comic relief character. Uh, there was like the, one of the characters' the engagement uh, was cut out as well. And I love the fact that when Harvey Weinstein goes and messes around with like a sad ending, it's always because nine eleven. Um, Indeed, yeah, and, it's always the. And it's like because after he's quoted saying that um, that after nine eleven, nobody would want to see something sad, and it's like, what gives you the right to go and cut someone else's film? You're handling the distribution. You aren't the producer who would you would imagine would have the right to cut someone's film. Because obviously, you know, they're investing money in the film being released. But as the distribution side, what right do you really have to go and edit someone else's film? And I mean, as you wrote, I mean, it sat in the vault till 2006, uh, where Magnolia Pictures picked up the distribution rights. And I mean, the original cut is 101 minutes. Um, I'm trying to, I think the version we watched is around 91. So it's a little bit shorter, uh, the one we saw, but it's still. It's still a, a decent cut that we have that's available through Magnolia Pictures, but as you rightfully said, assuming it's it's a very bare bones release, there's no special features, and I think on the DVD copy I've got that they actually market chapter selection as a special feature. They they they, they do indeed, and the tra- and the trailer it looks like it's been recorded via a cam at a cinema. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't display the the, the 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 sort of the visual style at all, but yeah. um. It's, it's, which is which is a shame. I have real mixed feelings about Miramax and Harvey Weinstein in particular because, yes, there's all that. There's everything we've just spoken about. Yeah, about catch grabbing movies, hiding them in the vault, butchering them, blah blah blah. But at the same time, it's an American studio that is going out there to those different territories and pulling movies into a, a western uh, make them at least available to a western mainstream audience yeah. so it's it's just it's done in such a terrible way on so many occasions oh definitely so and i mean this is let's not forget this is what led to the death of tartan because tartan was unable to get those key releases and it was really pinpointed uh down to the fact that they were unable to get the rights to the host that sort of marked the beginning of the end for Tartan. And that's what a lot of people cited as, as what sort of led and the fact that they were, they started off as the, as the only company really bringing in sort of like the new wave of Asian cinema with things as we certainly mentioned before when we talked about the new Asian invasion, uh, when they were bringing in films like The Ring and Battle Royale and uh, Takashi Miike's Audition. And it, basically, a lot of other companies, and certainly a lot lesser companies, were seeing this as like, oh, an easy way to cash in. So they were basically going and buying, trying to buy up the same films that Tartan was obviously bringing across. And it sadly led to their demise. And it, I'm still frustrated even now, the fact that we still don't get as nice a release as we get with Tartan. We perhaps come close with uh, the likes of Arrow, but Arrow have got this really annoying habit of doing these really hand-drawn and like, Neil Grindhouse covers and all their DVDs, which is a little frustrating. And you mentioned already Snowpiercer. Do you think we're ever going to see a release of Snowpiercer over here in the UK? Well, maybe because um, Bong has got a new movie about to come out, hasn't he? The the one the net the one that's on Netflix that, that's produced by Netflix, and there's yeah. all that again. There's all the fuss about at Cam. So I guess with another Bong movie around, 
there might be an opportunity for it to come out. I've, I mean, I, I'm lucky. I I've, I've saw it uh, uh, when I was in Hong Kong. I saw it when it came out, and it's a perfectly good, fine, if not really good movie. Yeah. And it just seems bizarre. That's <laughs> it's, it's 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 not it's not done the rounds in the UK. Oh, it, it, I mean, I guess now I know what the Americans feel like for having not been able to get out of a cup of Battle Royale or The Boys Love Mandy Lane for so long. Because I think that's the only real comparison. But they're still amazed the fact that we don't have Snowpiercer over here. And the fact that it was on Netflix US for like so long. Uh, so if you had a couple of like, had something to remove your geo restrictions, you could have obviously watched it that way. But no, uh, at the moment, uh, it's not looking like it's going to happen anytime soon. No, I don't expect it's on anybody's radar, other than, um, like I say, unless there's some interest in, in in the film. I can't remember its name off, Okpar or something like that. Um, yeah, so I'm interested, because I'd seen it before. I'm guessing you were new to it. How did... What, 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 what struck you about this film? Well, as I said already, this is probably the most fabulous Western you're ever going to watch. Um I actually watched part of this with my wife, and she did actually want did actually question is this was a gay western because it's shot in such bright colours. We've got these very pretty actors here. I mean, the film itself, it, for those not obviously familiar with it, it follows this working class outlaw named Dumb who's involved with the daughter of a provisional governor known Rompoy, and the film basically flashes back and forth um, over from both modern day through sorry present day uh to the past and we obviously see how this couple first met each other and how they reunited later in life um before obviously arranging to marry in secret and it's combines this uh element of love story with obviously the usual western shenanigans and it was so interesting to obviously see this film because it starts off as kind of like a satire of westerns the fact that we obviously have dumb uh goes in and then he's with this other gunman named uh mashuan and Mm. they're basically they go in and they do this epic like john woo style shootout with the shooting six uh six shooters but no one ever reloads and he's dumbs there supposed to be like this amazing gunman and the fact he does this amazing trick shot and the film stops comes up with the title card let's see that again and shows you how this uh trick shot was done in slow motion i thought well this is gonna be like a real humorous satire and then it just goes into this whole love story angle and it constantly hops around the genres uh well given this is very unique vision of what uh the director believes a western should be um as with the other eastern westerns we've seen it doesn't uh, in many ways it sticks to like the conventions of what the american and the spaghetti westerns were um and at the same time brings a lot of asian flavor to proceedings as uh, certainly is the case here yeah i, I mean I, I, for me it's a film of three acts as, as so many films are you have that you have that sort of opening bit which is full of a imagination and fun and craziness and absolutely the bit where the film stops and they re-describe the uh you know did you just catch that let's watch it again <laughs> but you know it's, it's it's wonderful but the film doesn't continue that on but you know it, it sets everything up and you think and and it's in this glorious pink and turquoise isn't it yes and and and, and they went along you know they and if, if you ever go to thailand you that will remind you absolutely because of buddhist country there's always little offerings of pink flowers all over the place and and it just seems absolutely right and when you sort of read about how they made the film they sort of painted everything pink and turquoise and transferred it to Betamax and back to film to get the right saturation so visually it's stunning and in fact I, I, I wonder if there could ever be like a blu-ray version of it to get it even more stunningly shot and then you have the middle section which is a very chaste structured slow burn romance variation very um it feels like many a korean drama where these two people sort of very slowly fall in love and and convention societal conventions stop them really expressing it for each other so you don't get any rumpy pumpy here you get you get (laughs) you get you get looks and maybe the odd touch um and 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 society's definitely getting in the way you know poor poor dom can't ever be with this girl 
because she's of a much higher class and he feels difficult and then every time they do get close he messes up <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 he gets beaten up or something like that for it so he's, he's trying okay. to stay clear and then we have the final act where we have one of the craziest attacks on a mansion i've ever seen including <laughs> grenade throwing dwarfs rocket launchers and then the sort of the, the kind of sad downbeat ending doesn't it but it's yeah, yeah definitely every film of three acts and i think a lot of people were blown away by the first act and then when it got to the more standard structured asian romance probably got turned off it a bit which is a shame because the end then is is, is equally as crazy as the opening before we obviously get into the action side, I just wanted to just talk a minute about uh, the actual the romance angle between uh, Dum and Romproy. I mean, the first time we're introduced really to this this couple and their first meeting as children, when Romproy first meets Dum, her first introduction is to grab his flute and break it. I mean, they've not said two words, and the fact she just walks up and breaks his flute, I mean, that's a real how do you do, isn't it? So. Yeah, she's a she's she's quite an entitled little rich girl, isn't she? She gets a bit she gets a bit stressed about the fact that he's playing it pretty cool, um, but of course that feeds I guess that feeds into how she replaces it with the, with the harmonica, which becomes sort of a signal uh, a symbol of their love throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and again, just the. The, the the tip for tat there. I mean, he breaks the flute, which makes a very lovely noise, very traditional instrument, and then gives him the harmonica, the instrument you play when you can't play an instrument. You might have given him a triangle in, as a replacement. <laughs> it's sort of like, it's like, really? that You think he's going to appreciate a harmonica when he had a flute before? It's, but um, no, it really sort of, I suppose he just walks up and breaks the flute. And I was like, wow, that's... <laughs> that's not really how you talk to someone when you first meet them. Just go up and break their instruments. So, yeah, um, we could we could probably go a bit further into the into the uh, into what the flute might be uh, representative of. But um, yes, it's it's. I, I just like to I just like to see it. Just shows you what a little cowbag she is, really. Yeah. Um, but and and you mentioned them. So we flash back to when they're children. Did you notice how the how the child actors? really look like child versions of the grown-ups which is something really rare i find in films <laughs> usually when you when you flash back you have to be given quite a lot of clues that these are the people that you've already met in the present day yeah and not only the two actors the the, the, the younger actors but there's this there's this group of three ruffians that that cause them some grief on a rowboat and then about 10 years later cause them some grief at college as well it's meant to be the same but again they look like child versions of the grown-ups it's quite remarkable i've never i don't i don't think i've ever seen a film so consistent in its approach to, oh yeah to, to how people look the, these are some absolutely fantastic cast in there the whole relationship though it just seems to consist of dumb coming off the worst like you would have thought that after this first meeting with Ron Proy that you know he perhaps wise up and think you know this girl's absolutely no good because not only does she break his flute he gets beaten up by the local gang of ruffians and gets a scar a, a long a permanent scar for his life on his forehead for his for his troubles yeah um he then rescues Ron Proy from being half drowned and his reward for you know this noble action is to be beaten by his father with a whip Public, publicly tied to a stake and publicly whipped to, to within an inch of his life. And, um, you know, the, he, his only thanks to this is the fact that he gets his flute replaced by a harmonica. Okay, we then flash forward to them and the university. And, uh, yeah, again, he faces the same group of ruffians and gets pretty much beaten up again. But for some reason, he, despite all his efforts to distance himself from Ron Poe, the two keep coming back together. Um I mean, do you think it was really worth all the hassle he goes through for this woman? I, I, well, well, obviously not. When we know what happens in the end, I think I think the poor fella gets the rough end of the the rough end of the stick the whole way through, really. But again, it's a very it's a variation thing. It's a very uh, the, the sort of the, this codified, structured, almost chaste romance where the guy goes through anything for the girl. I mean, it, it stops short of him giving her a piggyback somewhere, which is the other, 
or giving her his umbrella, which are the other, which are the two things you'll always see in Asian yeah. melodramas and romances. But yeah, I, it, it, I wouldn't have bothered. She was a pretty girl, but after the second beating, I might have given up. <laughs> I mean, there was the trouble I have with with Asian cinema, and this was certainly the case with Vonbach, is that some of the accents can be a little grating. So I was kind of glad that because we're obviously watching this, this is in its original dialogue and it's subtitled. So I was kind of glad that uh, the accents weren't particularly grating in this one because they've had to obviously sit through another round of uh, listening to we've run probably sounded anything like the girlfriend in on Buck. I would have pretty much ended it a lot earlier. With this Actually, one, but... this one wasn't so bad, but there is something you have to watch with Thai movies. Is that obviously as we've um, as the, the thing we're skirting around, so we can't say any of their names because they have very long names, um, multi-syllable names. So they all have shortened versions of the names, and quite often when you listen to a very talk-heavy Thai movie, they'll mention the name in every sentence. So I think it's just the way the language works. You know, you you you, you say the name of the subject, so they'll be ah oh, dam da 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 dam. And it just go on and on, and it gets really quite. The, it really does. It's quite a lovely language on the whole, but sometimes in film it gets quite grating because it's very dialogue heavy, and you'll just pick up on that one word that you know, and it's it's said in a really, to a Western ear, quite frustrating way. But this one, this one wasn't too bad. In fact, I was I was sort of straining my ears to see how do you say rumpaye because <laughs> it's, it's a very unusual looking word, and 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 so. Uh, I like to you know learn a bit of language out of it anyway. Yeah, it's always good. You know, teach yourself a new language by watching foreign cinema. Yeah, that's always the plan. Never quite goes that way, does it? Or you learn terrible words. No, <laughs> I, I always told that my pronunciation is just horrible. So, uh, <laughs> you whenever you try to like use a bit of Japanese or whatever words you've picked up, and they just look at you <laughs> that look of pity. It's sort of like, oh, he's trying. Isn't that nice? Yeah, but my, my, most I've got, I've got Chinese friends who just look at me and just yeah, absolutely think don't don't bother, <laughs> just don't bother. One of the main selling points of this film, and certainly if I was to sell this film, uh, it would be on the action scenes. These action scenes are so over the top, which I think is putting it mildly. They've got like this John Woo. Um, style sort of John Woo sort of wing, Ringo Lamb style flamboyance to them yet at the same time they're just completely over the top it's sort of like it's almost as though the director's like gone okay John Woo would go to this point let's go past it as seen where we have this shootout uh, between this group of outlaws and the the police and we've got uh, Dumb basically shows up with this other bandit and uh, they break out a pair of uh, rocket launchers to start shooting at the police and um, I lost count of the amount of bullets that were fired in this one scene. It just seems like everyone has unlimited ammunition in this film. Well, yeah, and, and, and of course with the old six-shooter seems to all be able to shoot like at least 12 bullets without reloading, and, and, and they have a, and they have amazing aim, don't they? The, yeah. the, the, the smaller the weapon, the better the aim sort of thing. But there's, there's, a, there's a sort of a kind of joyous... Who gives a fuck about the whole thing? <laughs> like, like, you know, you know it, it just, just bullets fly. People shoot. There's one point later on in the film where one bullet is shot and three people fly backwards as if they've been knocked over by a hurricane. Um, and there's the bit in, in the scene that you're talking about. Um, the, the, the first sort of rocket launcher comes in. The main bad guy, is it Fi, is it? He's standing there. And then an arm just falls down next to him. And he sort of gives it this look <laughs> like... Oh, oh well, and just carries on. It's it's he's he's just sort of just they're just rolling with the fun of it, I think. But at the same time, you'll see a lot of with all the outrageous stuff. It's very influenced by Spaghetti Western, in particular Sergio Leone, with all the close-ups and sometimes even the music cues. There are definitely music cues stolen from the Once Upon a Time in the West and so on. But you know they they do like the full eye close-up, and then sometimes the long pull away. So. It's it's interesting, but like I say, both camp and then utterly respectful to what was gone before as well at the same time. Yeah, and it's unusual the fact that we've obviously got these elements of romance uh, combined with really like a peck and pass style western. I mean, it's very kept bringing back memories of like watching the Wild Bunch in particular. The fact that you see bullets uh, hit people and you see brains being blown out and 
it's a very bloody and violent western when we have very, these shootout sequences. It's very visceral, isn't it? Yeah. For that, I'm, I really enjoyed it, but it's it's like you're trying to appeal to two very different audiences. We've obviously drawn people in who are attracted to this very cinematic style. We've got this uh, very colourful uh, palette that is being shot under. We've got all this this sort of like these doomed lovers that plot in their romance and at the same time we're contrasting it with these full-blown shootouts and all this violence and uh brains and limbs being flying everywhere and it's sort of like how would you even which group do you appeal to when recommending this film i mean do you like sell this as like to uh sort of like the action fans or do you sell this to people who like romance it's like it, it sort of fails uh on but for think, both crowds in one way or another. I think it I think it does. So I think you just sell it as a cult film, which is a kind of catch all for everything, isn't it? Um but I, I, I you know, again, I've read a lot of reviews of this and almost universally people like the action stuff, people like the visual style, and they find the romance on the whole it's stalling isn't it it just it just knocks the impetus of the movie dead yeah and even more so because it kind of repeats itself so i'd i'd hate to think that i'm being harvey weinstein here <laughs> i i can see a good reason for cutting out half the romance stuff um i think that would probably make the movie flow a little better and you'd still get the the right idea but yes, I, I think I think you just sell it under cult, and, okay. and and it's not it's not one for your pure actioners. It's certainly not people who like their melodrama or their uh, or their doomed romances. Um, it's it's somewhere in between. And I think you you treat it like a like a lovely crazy painting rather than a uh, a deep movie. It's certainly an oddity. I'm just really trying to remember a time when I've seen a film this sort of random or genre bending. Really, I mean. Obviously, that brings to mind things such as like Save the Green Planet, which obviously had its own genre hopping antics. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember. I mean, the film. I mean, I guess I guess in Korean cinema you get quite a lot of this. You get a film that starts off as one thing and ends up as another. What What's unusual here? It starts off as one thing, comes something else, then goes back to what it was before. But in Korean cinema, you're quite a lot. You start off as a as a wacky comedy and then suddenly turn into a into a cancer girl movie or. Um, it'll start as an action and end up as a romance and that, that's not you'll get used to that watching a lot of Korean cinema um, but it, 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 it's its own thing and then when you take the director's work as a as a whole you'll see he's very interested in the crazy and the outlandish but also utterly constrained, not constrained but utterly interested in the style and the visual feel and this this feels like someone's first movie doesn't it, it almost feels like someone's film school project you know where they're drawing upon a bunch of influences and it doesn't quite, I mean I love the film but it doesn't quite work and I can I, I, that's, why I was, that's why I recommended it because I thought I was really kind of interested what someone like you who know you know who knows this cult cinema who's, 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 who's tried many things what they thought of it and I guess if you you know if you were going to say to anybody I guess it's a it's, it's some Takashi Maiki you could draw some parallels to oh yeah I feel that you, I mean, if we were just going for the most obvious comparison, I mean, we could obviously compare it to his own Shijuki Western Django. Obviously, uh, Mike there doing his own unique take on what the Western would be. But no, I mean, certainly, Mike, if we certainly look at films from like the outlaw period, certainly we would see examples of this. Uh, it's so hard when you obviously bring Mike, though, and certainly films the outlaw period because it's sort of like. Well, he's he's slightly more extreme and certainly less subtle in the romance elements than uh, we obviously see with this film. Um, perhaps something like Rainy Dog would be the 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 film that I would obviously most compare to to this. It's got that sort of elements of of action and uh, whimsy to it. Certainly enjoyed uh, enjoyed this. I love the fact that there's a dwarf gunslinger. I think which... that's everybody's favorite, and everyone's very sad <laughs> when he gets killed <laughs> spoiler alert <laughs> spoiler, yeah indeed but i think i think we're past spoiler alerts at this point it's um yeah oh i mean there's anything else about this uh film that 
that you you want to want to discuss. I mean, as you said, it's it's very much a, a film of two very different, very conflicting styles that are somehow glued together to create this very unique experience. And at the same time, we've got a director who's obviously not afraid to throw in a little visual whimsy as well. Um, I enjoyed the film throughout. I thought there was some great film films throughout. Um, certainly, our leading man, Cha uh, Chai Nangsam. Um, who plays uh, Dum Dwey has got some some fantastic cheekbones. As my he wife, has, uh, and he has, as she told you, right? But yeah, he's. I mean, he's. he's uh, I mean, he hasn't had much of a career since, but he was. Um, he's like a. He's like a television model adverts kind of person you know yeah. so so he's got he's, he's got great cheekbones good looking fella and actually um the our female lead i can't remember her name what's her name uh stella something like a very english sounding name she's got yeah, yeah stella or oh, her english stroke spanish uh italian so stella Malucci. They they do a lot of things with her, and I think I could be wrong, but I think they're sort of harking back. It's a very famous Thai actress from the sixties um, and seventies called Petchara Chawarat, who is a very elegant, big-eyed lady. But it's what she wears and the hair, the very stylized hair. She may have noticed. Um, that Rumpoye has her hair is always fantastic and it's always full of amazing curves and molded into fantastic ways. That's very much what um, Pechara's look was. So she'd be very famous. So he, so a lot of people would have recognised that in there. So again, it's very respectful to a a certain age of Thai cinema, which is actually quite frowned upon because people think it was very influenced by the West. So. Again, there's, there's this care in every element. The sad thing is, I don't think most of the audience, not only the Thai people, but us, us, us ignorant Westerners, probably didn't get half of it either. <laughs> well, it's many. I mean, we've got nothing to really compare it to. I mean, obviously, the director himself has has gone record. He said that um, most Thai audiences they dislike uh, Thai movies, especially like old ones, which they consider to be uh, nam nob. Which uh, translates as stinky water. Yeah, they don't like the things from the past, which is um, shame. Yeah, it just obviously gives us the fact that Thai cinema obviously hasn't had the same popularity as the likes of like when we look at like Hong Kong or Japanese or even Korean cinema, uh, because we don't have the reference points. It's so hard to see where he's obviously coming from and the reference points for this, and we the only thing we can really t- do is to compare it to like American counterparts uh, or in certain our case obviously to like the ja- Japanese counterparts of things that we've seen before so it's certainly unique in that po- point and it's if you like uh, Eastern Westerns this is definitely another one worth seeing uh, one to put along the likes of uh, Shinjuku Western Django or The Good, The Bad and The Weird um, I mean have you seen any of the directors of other films at all or is this well I have one? I have, and I'm going to save it because at the end, when we recommend another movie, okay. it's going to be one of his. Cool. But uh, he has, um, but yeah, the, the, he, he, I've, I've seen most of his other stuff. So, um, very visual director, very interested in visual style. Um, the film he followed this up with is probably his biggest success, is one called Citizen Dog, which I guess you would compare to something like um, the French film Amelie, it, it, which is a very visual, full of visual jokes and cues and things like that, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he, he, he's a visual guy, um, but he hasn't got a huge... Look, look, a lot of these directors seem to create hundreds of films, but he's um, he's never he's never been that prolific. We're going to take a quick break, uh, though, but when we return, we will be looking at our further viewing and the films which we have chosen to pair with Tears of the Black Tiger. Why haven't you seen Jaws? I've seen Finding Nemo. That's close enough, right? Why haven't you seen The Usual Suspects? Because I already know who Kaiser Soze is. I can't believe you haven't seen Videodrome. What? Has anyone seen Videodrome? You haven't seen Psycho. Okay, okay, okay. How about I start a podcast where someone will introduce me to one of these great movies I've never seen before, and in return, I'll have them watch a superhero movie, film-wise. The Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. Find it on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. And we're back. Obviously, still uh, joining me is Stephen Palmer. 
Hello, I'm still here. Um, and we were obviously in the first half, we were talking about Tears of Black Tiger. We're now going on to our further viewing. So this is the section of the show where we both give a selection to pair with, obviously, our main selection of the evening. So, um, Stephen, obviously, this was your selection this month. So you chose Tears of Black Tiger. What would you like to pair with it? Okay, so I'm going to go for another one of Wissit Sasantieng's films. Um, and it's called The Unseeable. Now, the unseeable is not only is it matching, it's matching because it's another one of his films. But um, I also mentioned at the beginning that they're really good at Thai, Thai films, are really good at horror movies, and, very, and specifically ghost stories. So the unseeable is a is, is a period ghost story set in Thailand, and although it doesn't have the gaudy colouring of tears of the black tiger it's it's a much more sepia toned piece but it's a beautifully filmed and constructed and sometimes i think there's nothing better than watching an asian film set in sort of like the 1920s where you have this early influx of, of western visuals so um you can think of films such as um well like the handmaiden that park chan work recently did where there's yeah. a real mix of east and west um there's a I think it was called The Silence, a recent Korean film which did that. I've, 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 there's, there's several films of it. Any film set in Shanghai in the 20s or 30s I'm, I'm in love with. But this is a Thai movie. As a ghost story, and if you've seen The Others, you'll pretty much know where it's coming from. But it's just a beautiful-looking, fantastic atmosphere, little story. Um, and, and it shows what someone can do with a little money, with, with little money and a great cast and just a good visual style. So I'd highly recommend that. It's really hard, unfortunately, to find. The uh, the only version of, of it on DVD I found in the West has got a, basically the, the, the picture is in the middle of about another screen's worth of black bar. It, it's really weird and it's really hard to watch. If you can find it other ways, I highly recommend it. For myself, I'm going to be going with... Um... A film by Shizuki, um, sorry, I'm going to go with a film by uh, Susan Shizuki, and that is the film from 1967, Branded to Kill. This is, again, a film which combines many different genre elements into probably one of the more unique viewing experiences that I'd had at the time, and certainly until I saw Tears of the Black Tiger. This one it involves uh, Goro Handa, and he's the Japanese underworld's third-ranked hitman. And he's currently in, finds himself being hunted by the phantom number one killer. And the, he's a hitman who's got not only some usual methods, but at the same time he's got a bit of a vague fetish for rice, in particular smell. And this is a film which is not only beautifully shot, but... Features some truly random plot uh, changes, including the two hitmen moving in together at one point, um, as we get probably one of the more random twists on uh, The Odd Couple. But if you're new to Suzuki's work, then Branded Sku is an absolutely great starting point along the likes of Tokyo Drifter, and certainly a film that I would recommend watching and certainly if you enjoy the randomness of tears of black tiger then i think that branded to kill is certainly going to provide you more of the same uh at the same time providing a lot of the japanese uh so yakuza frills for those um who obviously just like hitman movies as well so it's able to do something artistic and at the same time provide something with a little grunt behind it as well but uh no branded uh, to kill is going to be my selection to uh, pair with tears of black tiger and, um, and I'd I'd recommend that as well myself. Fantastic movie, which and the story behind it is almost as interesting as the film itself. So well worth well worth hunting that one down. Yeah, I have a feeling that we're going to come back to Branded Co at some point. Certainly, Suzuki's work as a director is one that I'm keen to to dive in at um, at some point. So certainly look at out for uh, some looks at his work on future episodes of this show, but. Um, as for tonight's uh, show, we'd, uh, we now bring things to a close. And uh, on the next edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club, we are going to be looking at a film which has been proclaimed by Quentin Tarantino as being one of his favourites and is also one of the films I'm 
kind of a shame that I've never actually watched. Um, as we're going to be looking at Wonka's 1994 film, Chunking Express, a uh, film which I know, Stephen, you're a big fan of. I'm not just a big fan of it. It's probably my favourite Asian movie of all time. So I am delighted you've picked that. And it's taken one of my side of the list. <laughs> okay. Um Obviously, uh, so that's uh, coming up on the next episode. Um, obviously, in the meantime, uh, Stephen, if people want to find you, where's the best place to come and find you? Yeah, you can come and find me on my blog at guelloramblings.wordpress.com or come and see the more group effort at easternkicks.com where there's always news, reviews, interviews about Asian cinema going on, new posts every day. And um, if you want to get hold of me, you can get my email at thingsfallapart at hotmail.co.uk or you can get me on Twitter on at LPVO. Okay. Um, we have also set up a letterbox list. Um, you can find the link in the description below, which not only features all the films we've covered on the show already, but our recommendations as well. Uh, so you can go and follow that on Letterbox. Uh, if you wish to follow my own blog, it's from the Depths of Hell, which is from the Depths of and the Twitter is at Elwood underscore Jones. Coming up on the next edition of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase, though, we are celebrating 50 episodes of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase by holding our second draft. This time it is a Deadpool draft, so we will be looking at our favourite movie deaths and the many moods which movie deaths can take. So uh, that's obviously coming up on uh, the next episode. But until then, I'd like to say thank you to my co-host Stephen, as always. Thank you very much for having me, as ever. And uh, this is Silver Jones signing off for another edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club, reminding you, as always, to keep it strange. Hey! 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 おどり続けていたい夜の空月が砕け散っても星が燃えて落ちても踊り続けていたい夜の空胸に刺さった恋の刃が燃える思いを Kinono